Good afternoon and welcome to the Sabbath afternoon program at the 70th ASI. We're delighted that you're here this afternoon. This afternoon's program will be one in which we're going to focus on the history of ASI and lay movements throughout history that have impacted the world and impacted the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We'll talk about where ASI has come from, where we have been going in the future, and where we are today. So, Tini, pray for us. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Our wonderful, most loving, kind, Heavenly Father, we thank you, first of all, for who you are, such a great and awesome, loving, and unselfish God. You've done so much for each of us, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the way that you have loved us and cared for us and guided us. And so we thank you for everything that you have done. And now, Father, I pray that you would bless this meeting this afternoon and each participant, each one, I pray you will give your power and Holy Spirit to. And Father, we ask for your presence here. We know that the Holy Spirit has been here and is here this afternoon, but we pray again for the outpouring of your Spirit. And so, Father, we will uh, give you the glory and the praise for everything also that um, ASI has done we thank you for the ministries of ASI. We know that it takes more than one ministry, more than one person. Uh, it takes all of us working together to really be unified to finish your work. And so we pray that you'd give us wisdom and power and your presence as we worship again this afternoon with you. So thank you. We praise you. We honor you. We love you. And we look forward to that great day when you will come again in the clouds of heaven. Keep us faithful to that end, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This year is the 70th anniversary of ASI and the 500th year celebrating the Reformation. It was in 1517 that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the castle church wall in Wittenberg. What do those two events have in common? What does ASI have in common with the Reformation? There are many things that ASI has in common, but there is one that I'd like to focus on. The truth that dawned on the minds of many during the Reformation is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, or chapter 2 rather. Certainly the Reformation focused on salvation by grace, justification. Certainly it focused on the authority of the scripture as above the authority of priests and prelates and popes. Certainly it focused on faith. But there was another aspect of the Reformation that dawned upon the minds of men and women another aspect that burst upon their consciousness. And we find that in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. The Bible says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, 
that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. The great truth of the Reformation was that priests and prelates and popes were not the custodians of the gospel, but that God had blessed average men and women with a knowledge of his grace and the marvels of his love, and that every Christian was to be a witness. Every Christian was to be a priest of God. Every Christian was to be ambassador for Christ. Witnessing is not a spiritual gift. Witnessing is the calling of every Christian whom God equips with spiritual gifts to witness. God has blessed down through the generations and centuries lay people. Matthew was a tax collector called by God who chronicled the gospel. Peter and John were fishermen called by God. And think of Peter's great sermon in Acts chapter 2 where 3,000 were baptized after that prophetic sermon showing that Christ was the Messiah. Peter was a lay person. Luke was a physician, a lay person called by God who joined Paul. Paul was the first ASI member. Because when you look back, you remember in Acts chapter 18, verse 3, that the apostle Paul was a tent maker in Corinth. Why was Paul a tent maker in Corinth, incidentally? Why did he join Aquila and Priscilla there? They were expelled from Rome when the Jewish persecution came. They were tent makers. Why did they go to Corinth? It was 51 AD. The Ismanian games were coming in 52 AD. They had no hotels to stay in. So Paul, an entrepreneurial tent maker, began making tents for the thousands that would come in the games so he could make some money to support his ministry. Paul was an ASI member, an entrepreneur, and he lit the world with the gospel. Thank God for ASI members who, like William Carey, you remember what William Carey said? He said, I cobble shoes to pay expenses, but soul winning is my business. The true spirit of ASI is one who indeed is self-supporting to do mission for Christ. Time went on church and state united. The dark ages came and the church had a different philosophy. Its philosophy was this. Lay people are to, to simply pray. They are to pay and they are to obey. But then the light of the gospel broke through in the middle ages. And as it did, Martin Luther and other reformers began to share the glorious truth of the priesthood of the believers. Lay people again rose to preach the gospel. And out of that reformation, as heirs of the reformation, the Adventist church grew. And those early Adventists often were lay people. William Miller, not an ordained preacher, but called by God as a godly lay person, rose to preach the gospel. And think of, for example, the Joseph Bates, a sea captain, called of God. God has been calling men and women down through the ages who are lay people, touching them 
with the spirit of the gospel, changing their lives. Mission is part of the DNA of lay people in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Mission identifies who we are. And mission was part of a lay movement in our early history. And young people propelled by mission went forward to preach the gospel, Charles. force behind our church, and we have found that in the early portion of our church, it was very intentional. It wasn't accidental. It was very intentional what our leaders did. What do you mean by, by it wasn't int- intentional? It was ac- not accidental, but intentional. They very much infused their young people with a sense of mission. The fact that they were on earth for a purpose, and that purpose was to share Christ and his soon coming with the world. And that's the spirit of ASI. That's exactly the spirit of ASI. ASI is patterned after that very attitude. And that attitude is probably best embodied and, and exemplified in the person of E.A. Sutherland. Uh, who was E.A. Sutherland? Why don't you tell us a little bit about that man that was so fundamental, so basic in the foundation of ASI. It'll be my pleasure to do that, Mark. Thanks for letting me share. E.A. Sutherland grew up in rural Iowa, not far from the Minnesota border, and he learned hard work very early age. You see, even when he was a very, very young man, he and his sister herded cows for an entire summer for a total of 35 cents. He managed to hang on to that 35 cents over the winter, and with his father's encouragement, he invested that 35 cents in some onion sets. And he tended those onions through the year, sold them for a tidy profit at the end of the year, and that was his first, if you would, ASI business venture. You see, the year after he graduated from high school, he took a job teaching in a nearby schoolhouse. He rode his pony mouse back and forth throughout the winter, and in addition to teaching many lessons, he learned one lesson that was critically important. And that critically important lesson was that God called him to reach young people for Jesus through education. He felt that he was poorly equipped, however, and he determined to go and get additional college training to remedy that shortcoming. Now his family, his father in particular, did not agree with his college aspirations, and they offered him no support. So Ed Sutherland sold his pony mouse so that he would be able to make the trip to Battle Creek. He went there to live with a couple of aunts, and he wasn't immediately ready to enter college, and so he spent a year studying rhetoric and English with Professor Goodloe Bell. Professor Bell had some rather different ideas about education. For example, Professor Bell thought that the Bible should be the foundation of all the principles that we communicate. He also felt that in addition to head learning, that we should be learning practical things. And so he and Ed spent half of each day out in physical labor. Now, in spite of his family's disapproval of his pursuit of college, Ed determined that he should go home and help his father on the farm the first summer after he was in college. His muscles were soft, the work was hard, and his father was harder. 
against the protests of his mother and the rest of the crew, his father put him on the toughest job in the harvest. It was called the straw monkey. But Ed sang and prayed his way through that harvest season without any complaint. The next summer, Edward spent call portering. He went to Minnesota and he stayed in the home of Josephine Gotzian. Josephine Gotzian put call porters up in her home and some of the young men that had been there didn't have a really good experience. Ed determined that he was going to have a better experience with his benefactress. And so he went out of his way to take care of her home and her carriage horse. And he wouldn't know what benefits this friendship would have in the future. Now when Ed returned to Battle Creek, it was for his junior year in 1888 and he met a new friend there. The new arrival was Percy McGann. Percy McGann arrived from Ireland and he had been invited to live in the home of the now widowed Ellen White. Ed began spending more time with the boys, excuse me, with Percy in the Ellen White's home. Ellen White referred to Ed and Percy as the boys. Ed and Percy referred to Ellen White as Mother White. It's an term of endearment that they used throughout their lives. And it was no accident that placed Ed Sutherland, Percy McGann, and Ellen White together in 1888. This, as you recall, is when there was a renewed emphasis in our church on righteousness by faith. What Mother White referred to as the third angel's message in verity. Though younger than Edward, Percy had a number of things that he was going to teach him. One of those things was the religious experience that he enjoyed. Little by little, Percy led Edward into the same close walk with Jesus that Percy had already enjoyed. And the visits with Mother White and the long talks with Percy brought Ed into that same relationship. And Ed and Percy were rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ. Through that winter, the boys also observed Mother White closely. They learned to value the marvelous gift to the remnant that the gift of prophecy bestowed by God on this gentle woman was. And they came to the conviction that those revelations were direct from God and they needed to follow that guidance. They did through the rest of their lives. In addition to his studies... Percy took a job in the college bakery. He was soon the head baker. And in his spare time, he went over to the machine shop to learn how to use the tools that were found there. Ed, on the other hand, in his spare time, played football and baseball. And when Ed attempted to recruit Percy for the baseball team, Percy responded, I can't regard any activity as recreation suitable for me unless it confers benefit on someone else. Ed pondered his friend's position and eventually he came to believe the same as his, as his friend. Around this time, Ed noticed also a certain young lady. Her name was Sally Brilliard. She was from Iowa also. She was talented. She was educated in languages. She was artistic. She had a sterling character and they both wanted to teach. And the faculty gave their permission so that they could date and at the end of the following summer, they were married. Ed and Sally took a call to Minnesota. Percy was asked to interrupt his studies 
because the college had a desperate need for a history teacher. And then they connected at the end of that next school year at a conference, an educational conference that was being held in Harbor Springs, Michigan. The Seventh-day Adventist Church educators were getting together to finally consider the counsels that Mother White had been sending on education. While they were there, Ed suggested they go fishing. Percy responded, vegetarian. And before the day was over, Ed and Sally were vegetarian as well. Also while at Harbor Springs, Ed was asked to teach history, but this time at Battle Creek College. Before he could even start teaching, they changed his subject on him. They gave him Old Testament Bible, and he figured the best place to start Old Testament Bible is in Genesis. You know, you don't have to go too far in that book, and you start finding out what the original diet was. And soon the students were asking for a vegetarian option in the cafeteria. It wasn't two years later, and Battle Creek was a vegetarian campus. After only one year at Battle Creek, Ed was asked to go and be the principal of a new college. It's a place out in Washington State called Walla Walla. The president for the college lived in Michigan, so for practical purposes it was up to Ed to get the school year started. In his first five months, he needed to attend camp meeting in Seattle, create a curriculum for the college, produce a catalog, find and hire qualified teachers, recruit some students oversee the construction workers so that the building got built and on December 7, 1892 they opened school with 91 students 10 teachers. By the end of the school year enrollment was over 160. Now by contrast I want you to understand the University of Washington had already been in operation for 30 years but only had 42 students. Things were a bit rough, however. The building wasn't finished when school opened. Construction only progressed as funds were available. Ed was insistent that they not be going into debt. The only heat in the building was two stoves. One was a potbelly stove in the chapel, and the other was a borrowed range in the kitchen, which, it turned out, did not work when they first tried to fire it. There was only one bathroom and one tub in each dormitory. And the staff wrote to the general conference describing the situation and asking for help. The reply that came back was a set of detailed instructions on how you could take a bath in a basin of water. The school promptly purchased basins for the dormitory. Ed was very intentional about educating his staff. He held staff retreats where they would study the testimonies that were coming from Mother White in Australia, where she was starting Avondale. The testimonies were a constant topic of conversation on campus. The fundamental question with every new letter of counsel was, what is this going to look like on our campus? How will we implement this principle? The second year, Ed was given the title of president, and there was also a new staff member that came. Bessie DeGraw interrupted her studies at Battle Creek, very much like Percy had done, and traveled to Walla Walla to help out. She proved to be a dynamo, and she wound up working with Ed Sutherland for the rest of her life. That winter, Ed presented a report of what was happening at Walla Walla to the general conference. 
The conference also heard reports from Battle Creek, which was struggling at the time with a debt of about $90,000. In today's currency, that would be about $2.6 million. Clearly, God had been able to bless Ed's leadership at Walla Walla, and so the general conference voted to move that leadership to Battle Creek, to the flagship educational institution. At the age of 32, Ed with Sally and Bessie joined Percy back at Battle Creek. Now, Battle Creek was located on only seven acres of property in the middle of the city, and Ed and Percy desperately wanted to move the college out into the country to be in compliance with Mother White's counsels. But her personal counsel to the boys was wait. The time is not yet right. So they did. They waited, but they weren't idle. While they were waiting, Percy started a debt relief organization. Ed wrote a sizable book on educational history. Ed and Percy went out and plowed up the tennis courts and the baseball field to provide garden space. There was a great deal of opposition to the reforms among the students, but there was also a great deal of support and a revival swept through the college. Ed was getting letters from several churches requesting teachers for children. He went to the chapel meeting with the students with three letters of request, and he asked if there might be any students willing to interrupt their studies to go and help these churches. No one replied. So the next day, he made the same inquiry, and first one, and then two more young ladies stood up. By Christmas, there were seven schools in operation, with students that volunteered to lead out. By March, there were 13 during the next year, 57 schools were organized. By the fall of 1900, just two years later, almost 150 church schools were in operation. And in 1900, Mother White also unexpectedly announced her return from Australia. She determined that she would attend the February 1901 General Conference meeting, in part because of things revealed to her about problems that needed to be met very firmly here in America. She addressed that conference on several subjects, and among them was the relocation of Battle Creek. After her comments on that subject, the General Conference Committee voted to purchase rural property so that they could move the college. Now, Ed and Sally and Percy, they'd already been scouting out properties, and they knew just where they wanted to go. The next year, school started in a new location, a place called Berrien Springs, Michigan. And the new location called for a new name. Emmanuel Missionary College. Since there were only a few small buildings on the new campus, classes that first year were held in the recently vacated courthouse and jail. Percy's wife gave her entire inheritance to help start the construction on campus. Progress on the campus was obvious and rapid, but opposition to educational reform was also strong. Percy's wife, Ida, had always been rather frail. And she took ill, in part from the stress over the criticism that her husband was receiving. She died during the Union Conference meetings that May of 1904, leaving Percy with two small children. Percy and Ed had had enough. They tendered their resignations, and they headed south. 
Ed met Mother White on Ed's and White's paddle wheel boat called the Morning Star. They started upriver to pick up Percy, but they had mechanical problems along the way. Ed recognized the place. It was Neely's Bend near Larkin Springs, not far from Nashville. Mother White wished to see a farm that was nearby. Ed had already seen it. He was not interested. But he agreed to accompany Mother White. The place looked worse than Ed had remembered. Mother White seemed enamored with it. It looks like a place I've seen in vision. And Ed's heart sank. No sooner had they picked up Percy than Mother White called Ed and Percy to her cabin. Well, Brother McGann, I saw your farm today and I walked all around it. I am convinced God wants you and Ed Sutherland to have that place. It's the kind of place that's been shown to me in vision. What do you think of it? I think of it as little as I can. It's too big. It's all run down and we don't have the money. Well, I'm sorry. Because it seems to me the Lord intends you to have that place. And a few days later, Ed and Percy did return to the farm. Ed shared with Percy, Oh, I wish we had some honorable and Christian way to get out of the whole thing without showing a lack of faith in the testimonies. They wrestled with their decision for the rest of the day. But before the day was out, Percy summed it up like this. Ed, we're in it. And we're in it voluntarily. Mrs. White is with us. God is leading us. And he will show us the way. They shared their decision with Mother White. And she showed great pleasure. She said, I'll do anything I can to help you. You tell your story to the people and they will help. And I will recommend your work. And if you wish, I'll come on your board. Now that last statement bore great significance. It was the only board that Ellen White ever served on. And she served on it until the year before she died. Right away, Ed went north to consult with his aunt Nell. Nellie Drillard was known by most as Mother D. She was a fiery redhead, but more importantly, she was a keen businesswoman. They took the next train that they could back to Nashville. A welcoming party met them at the train station, and it included Mother White. When Ed and Mother D heard that the price had been raised on the farm by another $1,000, Mother D said, well, I'm glad we're not going to take it. Glad? Glad, said Mother White. Do you think I'd let the devil beat me out of a place for $1,000? It's cheap enough. And she then turned to Mother D. Nell, you think that you're old enough to retire. But if you'll cast your lot in with these boys, if you'll look after them and guide them and support them in what the Lord wants them to do, the Lord will renew your strength. And you'll accomplish more in the future than you have done in the past. Mother D immediately provided the down payment. The signatures for the property were attained that day. A feat about which Mother White later would tell the boys, you will never know how many angels it took. The owners didn't vacate the property immediately. People had to stay wherever they could find. The servants' quarters above the carriage house were dubbed Probation Hall. If you could endure its rigors, 
you could handle anything Madison was going to give you. Until the Fergusons left, the downstairs household servants' quarters held mules and horses and smoked hams and mice and rats and flies and other vermin. The place was cleaned up, and over time, all of the pioneers took their turns living in the upstairs bedroom. Incoming students frequently also spent time there. The faculty voted themselves a stipend of $13 per month. Ten years later, they would go on record to say that they have been richly blessed to still be getting $13 a month, even though that $13 had depreciated in value by about 20%. Following the pattern of what had been done in Michigan, by 1909, Madison had sent out scores of students into the South to propagate the education and health outreach that had been begun on that campus. It was decided to invite representatives from each of what they called units to come to Madison and share in the work that was going on there. It was such a success that they resolved to continue to do that practice. By 1910, they'd survived the worst of it. Ed and Percy went back to school to get their medical degrees, and then Percy was called to the College of Medical Evangelists. Ed said, this is like tearing asunder bone and marrow. But as Percy was leaving, Lida Funk Scott joined the Madison family. For more of the stories of God's providence, I would love to be able to share them now, but our time is running out. And, and what you can do is you can, you can get the book, Madison, God's Beautiful Farm. For those of you who are here at the conference, it's available in the exhibit hall at the ASI booth or at the Madison or the ESA booths. And no one wants to be the bearer of bad news, but I'm afraid I have to just as an amateur historian set the record straight. While technically correct, this is the 70th anniversary of ASI. But since 1909, the units have been meeting every year to encourage each other in service. And this marks the 119th gathering of ASI. ASI was formally organized in 47 and was expanded and renamed to include the, the individually operated ministries and businesses. And Elder Finley, the units are still getting together, as is evidenced right here by ASI. Amen. Thank you so much. You know, to Wilson, one of the things that has deeply impressed me about ASI is the sacrifice and the commitment that ASI members have made as they've traveled the world to witness for Christ. You know, a number of years ago, I was on one of our self-supporting campuses, and there were a number of broken-down cars there. So I was complaining a little bit to the administrator. I said, look at all these broken-down cars on your campus. And he got this big smile, and he said, we like it that way. And I said, what do you mean? He said, when our students go out to the mission field, they're going to need to learn how to repair broken down cars. That's right. Yeah. And you know, it's that spirit of sacrifice and commitment that has always impressed me. When you think of the thousands and thousands of workers that have gone out to the ends of the earth, heaven's going to be a wonderful testimony of that sacrifice. That's absolutely right. And self-supporting workers, those who have in some way learned how to supply their own means and the Lord has blessed. They have been instrumental in bringing literally thousands of people into this precious Advent message. And it's amazing how ASI has spread all over the world 
just uh, next month, I'll be in ASI Europe for their convention in Novi Sad in Serbia. I mean, it's, it's a movement that is absolutely heaven-born. You have a fascinating background with ASI, and particularly with Madison. Would you like to share that with us? It's a fascinating story, and I'll try and do it in the six minutes that I have. Uh, if we can show the first slide, uh, I want to talk to you about William Henry Wilson and Isabella Scott Wilson. Now, like many people in the United States, their origins were in Ireland. In fact, they came from Donegal County. They immigrated to the United States, got married in North America, and found their way ultimately out to the Northern California area. William was not a Seventh-day Adventist, but Isabella, my great-grandmother and my great-grandfather, of course, Isabella became an Adventist, and I want to tell you probably why. She became very closely connected, and so did William, with a wealthy dairy farming couple, uh, Emmeline and Nathaniel Hurlbut. They were visited in 1908 by Ellen White, that's the Hurlbuts, who were quite wealthy. They were visited in 1908 uh, by Ellen White, Willie White, E.A. Sutherland, Sarah McIntyre, the secretary of Ellen White, and another individual. And they were urged to move from California to Georgia and to start a self-supporting institution. This burned in the hearts of the Hurlbuts, and they enlisted the help of certainly my great-grandparents, but my great-grandparents' children. They had four sons. The Hurlbuts were very instrumental in the Wilson family, and in fact, they were, uh, they, Mrs. Hurlbut was called Grandma Hurlbut. They eventually moved to Georgia. Interestingly, the very place that they moved was in Reeves, Georgia. Reeves has now become basically Calhoun, Georgia. The property that uh, the Hurlbuts started their special farm, Hurlbut Farm Institute, was patterned after Madison, as were many of those institutions in the south of the United States. My oldest great uncle, who was the senior brother of my grandfather, Nathaniel uh, Carter Wilson. In fact, Nathaniel Carter Wilson, the first NC. My father, my grandfather, and I all have these initials, but different names. Nathaniel Carter was named for Nathaniel Hurlbut and Emmeline Carter Hurlbut. And these people had profound interest, uh, influence, and certainly an interest was generated in a great way in our family. Now, the picture you just saw, if we can go back to that uh, picture, is my grandfather, Nathaniel Carter Wilson, who, with his new bride, Hannah, my grandmother, went on their wedding night on a train to Reeves, Georgia. 
to join my, his older brother in, in the work. In reality, he, had, he was following up on what, my older, what his older brother had done because his older brother died of tuberculosis. Uh, and so there they were working in the self-supporting institution in Reeves, Georgia for probably about 10 months or so. Family Matters called them back to Lodi, California where my great-grandmother was living. And uh, from there in 1922, the two of them went to Madison College along with my father and with my aunt. And there they spent about three years at Madison College. My grandfather was the Bible teacher, he was the church pastor, and he was ordained as a gospel minister at Madison College. They left for Africa after that and then on to India and to a great extent Madison put its huge imprint on the Wilson family. If we go now and jump a few years, when they came back from mission service at that point, because they went back again, if we can show the next slide. This is a picture of my grandfather when he was approximately at the time when he became president of the North American Division. In fact, my father has served in that capacity, my grandfather has served in that capacity, and at that time he was elected in 1946. In 1947, uh, or just before that, I should say, he was elected also as the board chair of Madison College. So he came full circle. He uh, was then the chair of that particular institution that was uh, 180 patients uh, strong, 500 students, food factory, farm, etc., etc. The next year, in 1947, March 4 to 5 in Cincinnati, Ohio, 50 representatives and leaders from self-supporting institutions gathered and they forged greater ties to work together. Out of that, 25 institutions formed the first association of self-supporting institutions under the leadership of my father, who, uh, my grandfather, who had been so influenced by Madison College. My grandfather is quoted as saying, it is a great day in the history of the church, the Association of Seventh-day Adventist Self-Supporting Institutions. And two years later, in uh, 1949, as I have it, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, Dr. E.A. Sutherland was elected president of ASI, and Dr. J. Wayne McFarland, who many of us know as the co-founder of the five-day plan to stop smoking, was elected as the secretary. Uh, ASI's history is rooted in Madison College and in so much of the outgrowth of that incredible institution. And of course, in 1979, it was renamed Adventist Layman Services and Industries, expanding its activity. Uh, I'd like to show you the next picture, and it's a picture of my grandparents in their later years. My grandfather was the president of the Georgia Cumberland Conference in the early 60s and, and just the uh, change of that decade. And in 1959, while he was president of that conference, they had a session at a camp meeting that empowered the conference 
to work out details for the purchase of the Hurlbut Farm from the Layman's Foundation, and that later became the Georgia Cumberland uh, Adventist Academy. And so my grandfather was so involved in so much of this that was all founded in Madison. You know, to Wilson, as we look back at our backgrounds, these early experiences shape our lives. They help to shape who we are in ministry. They help to shape us in who we are in Christ and in witness. In a sentence or two, how did this background shape your life? Madison College, the connections, my great uncles working there, another wonderful person within our family, Billy Wilson, some of you may know him. Uh, these individuals have helped to create in my life uh, a very profound understanding as to what ASI and Madison College can do. Uh, I'll show you the next picture of my parents, and many of you will remember my parents. They uh, were tremendously influenced also by ASI and Madison College. This heritage will live in the hearts of people and in the mission outreach until Jesus comes. You know, just as you have been somewhat influenced as by ASI, self-supporting institutions, early in my ministry, I had a great influence in that area. In fact, I'm not the only one with a story, Mark, because you have been so influenced by this connection with especially Wildwood. Tell us what's happened. Well, in the late 1960s, I was a ministerial intern. I had been in ministry for two years, and I met Elder W.D. Frizee, who was the president of Wildwood at the time. My wife was teaching elementary school in Hartford, Connecticut. I was a young ministerial intern in Hartford. And Elder Frizee came to have a series of meetings on the sanctuary the Lamb of God in the sanctuary, the Lamb who dies, the priest who lives, Jesus' ministry in the sanctuary. And I remember we were going through that series, and I was deeply impressed by the spirituality of his meetings. Elder Frizee was not a preacher that was bombastic or fascinating. When he got up to speak, you sensed that the Spirit of God was speaking through him. I had never been in meetings before that I walked in and I sensed that the lives of people were being changed. People were being touched by the Spirit. And as a young preacher, I was really impressed by that. I thought to myself, I don't want my messages simply to entertain people. I don't want to be a fascinating preacher. I want the Spirit of God to come down. I want some heart to be touched, some life to be changed, somebody be moved upon by the Spirit. And I remember it was in February, and the snow was coming. And I said to Elder Frizee and to our senior pastor at O.J. Mills, I don't know if we should have the meeting tonight because every report is that it's going to snow and snow and snow. And that godly man simply said, my brother, let us pray. God is the God of the weather. And you know, there are some things that are indelibly etched on the consciousness of your mind forever. And Elder Frizee and Elder Mills and I got down and he prayed, and he prayed a simple prayer, Dear Lord, you know those people and they need to hear this message tonight, and I pray you'd put your hand over this city. It snowed that night all around us, 
and it did not snow in Hartford, Connecticut. Amen. All around us, the roads were icy. And I said to myself, here is a man that knows God. And I remembered what Dwight L. Moody said, and he said, the world is yet to see what God will do in and through and by and for and with the man that is consecrated to him. I want to be that man. Mm. A number of months later, Elder Frizee gave me an invitation to become his associate. And he said to me, if you come to Wildwood, I can offer you nothing. I can't offer you a salary because we don't have one. I can't offer you housing because I don't know where you're going to live at this point. We'll have something when you come. I can't offer you prestige, but what I can offer you is myself. Hmm. I will share with you everything I know in ministry. So I came to Wildwood as a young preacher. I watched him make an appeal and I learned how to make them. I watched him with testimony meetings and I saw the power of God change people's lives and I learned how to have testimony meetings. I watched him as he prayed with people after the meetings and it was indelibly written upon my mind. One day, it was October 22nd, and Elder Frisee said to me, we often preach together. He said, Mark, you preach the first 20 minutes of the sermon and whenever you finish, I'll get up and I'll take up where you left off and I'll preach the rest of the sermon. <laughs> and so he would preach 20 minutes, I mean I would preach 20 minutes and he would preach 20 minutes. We'd choose the topic together. So he said, Mark, I want you to preach, it's October 22, I want you to preach on the sanctuary. You preach on the fact that of the 70 weeks, you nail down the fact of 27 AD, 31 AD, Christ's crucifixion, you deal with the 69 weeks and so forth. Now I was a young preacher. And I thought about that and thought about that. He said, after you preach on the sanctuary and you show that after 1844, Jesus went into the most holy place, then I will get up and say, what is Jesus doing now? And I'll explain his ministry up there. Well, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I only got 20 minutes to do that. I'm going to get confused. So I went to Elder Frisee and said, Elder Frisee, I don't think I could do this. You know, that old preacher at the time respected this young preacher. He said, Mark, if you're uncomfortable with it, this is what I want you to do. I went to him on a, on a Friday morning. We were supposed to preach Friday night. He said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take your Bible and you go out today under the trees and you pray all day and let God give you a message. I'm going to do the same thing and you meet me tonight at 6.30 here. Our meeting starts at 7. We'll compare our notes. We won't preach on it 2,300 days, but you go pray all day. I'll pray all day. We'll come back. So I go out and pray all day. About halfway through the day, I look at Philippians 2 and I say, I'm going to preach on Philippians 2. Came back to Elder Frizee. It was about 6.30 at night. And I look at him and I say, Elder, I, preach on, I want to preach on Philippians 2, the humility of Christ. He said, go over your sermon notes. I went over my sermon notes. He sat there like this. Praise God. Praise God praise God. He handed me his sermon notes. We hadn't talked all day and he had developed a sermon ending, starting where my sermon ended on Philippians the second chapter. Amen. We knelt and prayed together and that night the Spirit of God came down. Amen. Incidentally, if you want to hear that sermon, it's called There's Room at the Top and I think you can get it from Wildwood Recordings today. I preach the first 20 minutes, he preaches the second. Elder Wilson, what impressed me early in my ministry, in my time at Wildwood, was that I needed to be a man of God. Amen. That I could not waste people's time in preaching. And, and in associating with Elder Frizee, listening to him make strong appeals for Christ changed my life. Amen.
And you know what really marks the incredible aspect of the imprint from self-supporting institutions and Madison College is sacrifice. It sacrifice is. for Jesus. And that same sacrifice is going to be manifested at the very end of time. It is. And there are many other stories as well that are so similar to your story and to my story, Elder Wilson. I think Charles has some other stories for us. He does. There are several stories that I think would be helpful for our ASI family. But we only have time for a few. And the first I want to share with you is about Elmer Brink. Now, when the team began to assemble on the old Ferguson farm, the program was far from being a large and well-oiled program. In addition to a few students, there are only a few dedicated faces, one of which I cannot even show you. And that one, mostly unknown but critically important, is Elmer Brink. You see, everyone had their task to do on the place to get it up and running. Mother D ran the skillet and the broom. Percy ran the farm. Ed ran the butter churn. Bessie took the butter into town and sold it to get a little bit of cash. But if it wasn't for Elmer taking care of the cows that produced the milk, that made the butter, that produced the cash, they may not have made it through that first year. And what we know of now as Madison may never have come to be. Elmer represents a multitude of dedicated, skilled workers that each sacrificially ply their gifts and their talents that God has given in whatever place of ministry God has placed them. Undeterred by challenges that might arise, they faithfully do day by day the things that bring success to ministry, usually allowing others to step into the spotlight they're content to know that they've been faithful in their place and that God has led them. This likely describes the majority of ASI, whether in individual or in institutional ministry. And you might remember that Ed Sutherland met Josephine Gatzian when he was in her home canvassing. Well, after spending some time in California helping Ellen White to get the medical work off the ground there, including helping to fund the original purchase of the Paradise Valley Sanitarium. She made donations to the College of Medical Evangelists and then she moved east to Tennessee. Her home was made there at Madison and her house also housed the first sanitarium patients. She provided the means for the construction of some of the campus buildings and lived there at Madison until her death. Aunt Nellie Drillard was a keen businesswoman, and she did look after the boys. She did not only de dedicate the rest of her life to the development of this God-inspired school, but she committed her personal financial resources to the down payment and to the infrastructure of the place. Lida Funk Scott, that we only briefly mentioned earlier, was an heiress to the Funk and Wagnalls Encyclopedia Fortune. After spending some time at Battle Creek, she thought she'd go south to see the, a school that she'd heard about down there. And she liked what she saw at Madison and decided to stay. <clears throat> Though a wealthy woman, she adopted the very simple lifestyle of Madison. She poured her inheritance into the development of ministries like Madison and Loma Linda. And her personal outreach was to encouraging the units that were springing up from Madison by lending her presence and her advice and her means. In 1927, 
she invested her resources to establish the Lehman Foundation to carry on that, that mission and the Lehman Foundation in turn launched the EA Sutherland Education Association. It started in, in 2002, excuse me, and it continues much of that work of encouragement and support of the lay operated educational units. Now if you were to try and measure it in today's currency, each one of these ladies contributed hundreds of thousands of dollars toward the establishment of Seventh-day Adventist denominational and lay operated ministries. And she, I believe these ladies represent those here in ASI who contribute or manage the resources that God has provided and that are critically necessary to establish and to move ministry forward. But perhaps most significantly, there are those who heard in chapel from week to week the needs of the work. They heard year by year of the blessings that God was giving to those who had faithfully gone out to replicate this model. People who caught the vision of service that was Madison and went out to start their own outposts of ministry. And to best tell that story, you don't need this amateur historian. You need to hear from somebody who lived the experience. Steve, why don't you tell us what it was like as your family pioneered ministry at Harvard Hills Academy? My father showed up at Madison, Aca uh, Madison College, came from California at the young age of 18. He left California with just a few dollars in his pocket, enough for a bus ticket to get across the country and to uh, Madison. He showed up there and he said, well, here I am. I'm ready to go to school. He was accepted into college. And uh, sure enough, they let him in with just a few dollars in his pocket. He began to work his way through school there. My mother showed up from Massachusetts. Uh, she had been raised, her father was in the Navy and had moved all over the countryside. At the age of 15, she had become converted to Adventism through a friend of hers. She was the only Adventist in her family, but she felt impressed at the, uh, when it was time to go to college that she should try to go to a Seventh-day Adventist college. Because the family didn't have a lot of money, she ended up at Madison College and she was taking the nursing course there. And her and my father became acquainted. Eventually, they were married. One day, they were sitting in chapel together. And as the custom was for many chapel services at Madison, one of the things they did regularly the was they made an appeal for new work to get started. And so Mr. William E. Patterson was standing up in front of the auditorium and chapel there. And he was saying, you know, we're going to start some new work and we have a vision to start a new school, and I'm going to need some help. And he began to describe his vision of what he wanted to do in helping young people and uh, to earn their way through school and to plant an institution where there was no Seventh-day Adventist presence. And um, as I heard the story, my mother elbowed my father in the ribs and said, Louis, I think that's us. And, uh, of course, with a little elbowing, uh, you, you usually get up, right? And so my father and my mother went forward and dedicated themselves to helping to begin the work of this institution. This was in 1951, in the late part of 1951. And uh, Mr. Patterson went to Hardin County, Tennessee. 
Now, Hardin County, Tennessee is an interesting place. There was no Seventh-day Adventist presence in that county. In fact, there was no Seventh-day Adventist presence in about nine counties surrounding Hardin County. Hmm. But God had not left this place forsaken. Several years before that time, he had sent two call porters working their way through Madison to Hardin County. And these two young men went to the county, and there was something very interesting going on in the county as they were getting ready uh, to do their call porter, and they found out there was a, a high-profile murder case going on. And they both had a little interest in that. And so they said, you know what? We're going to go call porter. And then when we get done call porting, we're going to go check and see what's going on with this, with this case. And so they began to watch the case as it went through. And they became acquainted with the judge, whose name was Judge Harbert. Well, um, so they were kind of paving the way. And when Mr. Patterson showed up in Hardin County, he said, I'm needing some property to start a school. Who should I see? and someone directed them to Judge Harbert. Judge Harbert sat with them in his office and he said, Mr. Patterson, I, I understand what you're saying here and I'll be happy to help you. Here's a, a plat of my property. You go out and pick out what you think you need and let me know what that is. And if you do what you say you're going to do, then you can have that property. But if 10 years from now you haven't done it, it comes back to me. So. 220 acres was donated to the project. The Madison College students came on board. They began to come to Harvard Hills Academy property. There was nothing there. They started clearing land. They eventually uh, built a little uh, campsite there and continued. There was no electricity. There was no running water. They began to clear the right-of-way and bring the electricity in and uh, eventually drilled a well and actually had something going on there. So it took a little while. But God was blessing in the process, and people were, the students from Madison would come down and they would work there and, and, and trying to get something started there. Well, it's just amazing what God does over time and with people that are willing. And um, Mr. Patterson's son, David Patterson, and my father brought their business. They were in the business of rebuilding pianos. So they moved their business there so that there was an industry at Harvard Hills Academy. My mother and Mr. Patterson's wife started a nursing home. We were the smallest licensed nursing home in the state of Tennessee with three beds. We laugh about it today. <laughs> three little beds there. And the, the, the funds to build that first little home there was called the Clara Ellis Hayes Home. Mr. Patterson had an interesting background, Mr. Patterson Sr. He was an agent for the federal government. And his job was to put people in jail. And so it was rather interesting. One day, someone knocked on his office door there at the college and said, Mr. Patterson, uh, I'd like to talk to you. He said, okay, come in. He said, my name is Roger Hayes. Do you remember me? Mr. Patterson says, no, I don't think I do. He said, well, you put me in jail. And I told you that if I ever got out, I was going to come back and see you. Well, at that point, Mr. Patterson became just a little bit nervous, wondering what was next. But he said, no, I've heard about what you're doing. Don't worry, I've heard about what you're doing down in Hardin County, and I want to help you. He said, uh, what do you need? He said, well, we need a building. We're going to start a little nursing home there. He said, well, how much is that going to cost? And he pulled out and he wrote Mr. Patterson a check for what he asked for to build that first little building for a nursing home. Mm. And Mr. Patterson told him, look, we've got a problem here. We can't name this after you. His practice was to name things after the person that donated the money. He said, we can't name this after you because you're a gangster. He said, I can't have that on the campus. <laughs> and uh, Mr. Hayes said, well, no problem. You can name it after my mother. And so the Clara Ellis Hayes home was started, three residents. 
Now we have 49 residents in a beautiful facility there. God is blessed immeasurably. We have about um, 60 to 80 students in the school. We have uh, a farm program and a, a, a radio station broadcasting to between Nashville and Memphis and all those, those rural areas out there. There are four churches that exist in that local area now. And it's not all because of what happened there, but Madison had a part to play in this. They were inspiring lay people to do amazing things. Many people were coming out of Madison doing these amazing things all across the South and around the world. It's just amazing. And I believe that God had a plan. Madison wasn't an easy place. We've heard about that already. But I think that was for a reason because God was showing people there, if it can be done here, it can be done anywhere. Amen. You know, Steve, God is raising up a generation of, of leaders and young Amen. people who will carry that torch of self-sacrifice, of commitment, of mission focus. And uh, God is raising up once again in this generation. You know, one thing, though, that um, is a little troubling, frankly, and that is that Madison did not continue. Madison closed. Is there a reason for that? Are there any instructive lessons that the church can learn today from the fact that here, here's an institution that was reported about in Reader's Digest. Here's an institution that the United States Education Department actually lauded as a model of American education. Here's an institution that spawned scores of other institutions and had hundreds and hundreds of uh, students go out all over the world, but yet it does not exist in that same form today. What lessons are instructed? Well, I think there's several lessons. Uh, one of the lessons that I take from it is the great need of our institutions across the country and around the world, whether they're supporting ministries or church-owned institutions. There is a huge need for leadership. And E.A. Sutherland was in his waning years in 1955, E.A. Sutherland passed away. The school lasted beyond that for about another nine years. But leadership is so extremely important. And this was one of the things, one of the qualities that I, I believe God was engendering in the people that came to Madison because the conditions were difficult. And as you have mentioned, sometimes difficulties in our life are the best teachers. They're very instructive. We learn rather quickly under very difficult conditions. And so I would just challenge our, our ASI family. Some of you are leaders. Some of you have leadership ability. And God may be calling you to step out of your comfort zone and to step into institutional life where leaders are in such demand. Just since being here at this convention, I have had several institutional leaders come to me and say, please help us, we need people. While it's true, money is helpful. Even more helpful than money is people, and we need people that are dedicated people who will come and put their lives into the work that God is doing in our institutions. So it's a huge thing. I think there's a couple of other things, though. Um, and, and as far as being instructive, I think we need to be very careful with what God gives us. Madison had been in a time of decline for a number of years, and the facilities were declining. And their relationship with the state demanded that they have good facilities and 
for housing the nursing students and for teaching and things like that. The facilities had been allowed to decline. Now this, this was really at the very beginning of ASI and so there was not that kind of organization in place to help the institution see the need and provide some of those resources for capital improvements that needed to take place. So it was the leadership issue, capital improvements, and um, sometimes we get distracted in an institutional environment and we're paying attention to the minor things when we need to be paying attention to the, to the big things. And so that's another thing that I think had some impact on what was happening there. So, you know, it, um, it, it, we do have a need, in fact, for workers without a question. You know, Dr. Wilson, as we think about leadership, you sit as president of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, and leadership is a need all over the world. Share with us just briefly a few qualities that you see in godly Christian leaders today. What are the kind of qualities that God uses in leaders to really take the church beyond where it is, to take an institution beyond where it is for aspiring leaders? Essentially, it requires an absolute faith in God, a humble spirit. And I, I tell you, and I speak to myself, all leaders today can be challenged with the glamour or the centrality of position and it is only in humbling ourselves before God that we'll see anything accomplished of any real value. Amen. If you are a humble leader, even if you may not be schooled in the best techniques of leadership, God will use you just as he did the disciples. And self-supporting work and ASI, the aspects that we've been talking about today, one of the greatest characteristics, Steve, is really in terms of leadership, people who are willing to do anything they could to advance the work of God. So leadership certainly has to be humble, it has to be knowledgeable, it has to be completely leaning upon the Lord himself, and it has to be creative. And the Lord intends for us to use creative ideas and our own initiative and he will add his blessing to what happens. Another huge factor in leadership today is faith. Mm -hmm. Faith in Amen. the wonderful remnant understanding of God's precious prophetic movement and that God truly will be the leader. You know, this morning we had a powerful sermon to help us to understand not to place our trust mm -hmm. in ourselves or in what we can do but to lean completely on God's power to accomplish it and not only God's power but God's way of accomplishing Amen. it. Amen. And That's of true. course as we read in the spirit of prophecy we have so much instruction about how God wants to accomplish his work. We need to have faith to follow it. You know Charles, God trains leaders in a variety of ways and Let's go back to some of that early history and discover how God trains leaders. Elder Finley, when Walla Walla and when Emmanuel Missionary and when Madison each started, they each started very much in privation and difficulty. There were few bathtubs. There was no air conditioning. In many cases, there was no heat. There was no excess money. 
They made do with whatever they had on hand. The first year at Madison, they had corn and cows. They sold butter to get flour. The diet was cornbread and milk toast. And to introduce some variety into the diet, they created brewists. Brewists was when you broke your toast into smaller pieces before you poured on the skim milk. <laughs> and when they were tempted to complain, Ed would remind everyone that the children of Israel ate manna for 40 years. They could manage for one. I would like to close my remarks with these words from Lyda Scott when she was reporting to the assembled representatives from the units in 1934, and I'm now quoting. Recently, some of the graduates of Madison College have had real experience in helping to establish a unit in Alabama, working in cooperation with the Mississippi-Alabama Conference. None are promised salaries. These they must earn for themselves. Two others of our graduates have gone to two little church schools in needy Mississippi areas. As an encouragement to those who are studying the self-supporting cooperative plan of units, I would say this. There are units needing reinforcements. There are places still available to earnest groups of people capable of working together effectively in cooperation and able to provide for themselves. The Lord has faithful men and women with money being prepared in hidden places who will respond to his call in the fullness of time. And to illustrate, I came across one of these hidden ones this year. She said to me, if some with vision, a will, and the muscle will respond, I will furnish the money. She could not get young folks with the will to work and the determination to stick it out through thick and thin. This woman had been waiting and praying for 20 years. It is easier to raise the means than it is to raise the men. The night is coming when no man can work. Before the shadows deepen into darkest midnight the world has ever seen, some must call, answer the call, saying, here am I. You know, people often ask the question, what, what are we going to do? Who's going to start another Madison? How are we going to continue God's work? And, and the need is huge around the world. And as you've heard us talk just a little bit about this, the need for leadership is huge. And, but God is challenging individuals. I recently attended the Madison College alumni. They've been closed for over 60 years, but they still have an alumni meeting in June of each year where the graduates get together and they talk about their experience that happened to them there at Madison. Today, as never before, God is calling for workers. He's calling for people who will enter His vineyard and do His work. 
We mentioned this the first evening, and I'm going to mention it again right now. We have two books that we are giving away this year, kind of in, in uh, reference to our 70th anniversary. This book is special edition republished for this convention, Madison, God's Beautiful Farm. I invite you to stop by the ASI booth, surrounding booths there, and pick up your copy of this book and take it home and read it and get inspired about what God may want you to do. The other book I would mention is this little booklet that we have republished as well. It's called An Appeal for Self-Supporting Workers to Enter Unentered Fields. God is still calling today for people who will go and start things where there's nothing going on. You know, it's, it's relatively uh, inviting and comfortable to move into a community where there are many other Adventists and to kind of, you know, plant yourself there and attend the local Seventh-day Adventist church and sit in the pew. It just gets kind of comfortable, doesn't it? Well, I believe we're at a time in earth's history where God is calling us to do something more than to keep the pews warm in these larger communities. We're being called to go to places where there is no Seventh-day Adventist work. Hundreds and hundreds of cities and towns across this nation, thousands of cities and towns and villages across the world needing someone to come and give them the good news of the gospel. Well, the good news is today that the work that God is calling people to do is being responded to. We are not uh, in a situation where no one is responding to that call. We have several stories we want to tell you today. The first story comes from the country of Romania. I think we have some folks from Romania here today. The little school is being started there. It's called Integritas. And they read the book, Madison, God's Beautiful Farm, and they began to search for what they might do to fulfill that kind of vision for education. And as they were searching and praying, um, I, I went at one point to talk with them and encourage them in their quest to start something there in Romania. And they took me to a piece of property on a hillside there and they said, we're going to start something here. It's amazing what God is doing there. We're going to start something here. And I said, it's a beautiful piece of property. It's a lovely place to start a little school. And they said, that's what we'd like to do. And so we began to encourage them and to pray with them and to give them some counsel and they began to work. And uh, we're going to show you just a short video clip right now about the work that is happening in Romania, the beginning of this little school there. And I say little school. You'll see when, you, when they show the video that uh, God is really blessing there. And uh, again, what did they do? They started reading the book. And they started reading the books, God's Counsel, the book on education, and other books. And they said, we've got to do something. And God inspired them to do something. And so we're going to ask them to roll that video right now. Dori o educație în care Biblia să fie la baza tuturor activităților? Ce zice de o școală care împletește cunoștințele academice cu abilitățile practice și misiunea?
Apreciez o educație care pune accent pe dezvoltarea caracterului? O educație în care profesorul îți este și prieten. Ți-ar plăcea o școală situată în mijlocul naturii? Proiectul educațional Integritas, asemenea unei semințe plantate într-un pământ prielnic, a luat naștere prin citirea cărții Madison, Școala lui Dumnezeu. Dorim să oferim elevilor o educație bazată pe un curiculum creștin, în care principiile divine stau la temelia întregului sistem. Gândit pe principiul auto-întreținerii, cele 20 de hectare ale campusului sunt amenajate astfel încât culturile de exterior și cele de interior să fie valorificate prin muncă perseverentă și binecuvântarea lui Dumnezeu. Prin intermediul unor cluburi practice, elevii vor învăța știința cultivării pământului, arta apiculturii, clase de gătit sănătos, remedii naturale și diverse alte abilități. Pentru a reproduce cât mai mult atmosfera de familie, cel mai bun mediu de educație, liceul va beneficia de internate integrate. Aceasta înseamnă că un număr mic de băieți sau de fete vor fi în grijă a câte două familii de profesori pedagogi, care vor avea apartamentele atașate casei internat. Obiectivele noastre sunt dezvoltarea echilibrată, pregătirea pentru viață, cultivarea relației cu Dumnezeu și a iubirii față de seme. Succesul în educație depinde de fidelitatea cu care respectăm planul Creatorului. Things haven't changed, have they? Success depends on following God's plan. And I would challenge you, my friends, to uh, continue to allow God to speak to you about what He wants you personally to do. We have another story today. We're going to share actually four more stories. So get ready for four more great stories about what God is doing around the world with starting new things and, and impressing people to do something for Him. I would like to invite Wes uh, Stable to join me here. This story comes to us uh, from Arkansas. Anybody here from Arkansas today? Wes, you're here from Arkansas. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Now, Wes, um, you uh, at one point were a chicken farmer. Yes, sir. What, um, what happened with that? I don't think you're a chicken farmer anymore. Tell me, tell me about that. Well, I had always in my life uh, felt like I was a failure at witnessing. And I wanted to do something for God in witnessing, but I didn't know what to do. We had tried so many things. I felt like if God handed out report cards, I would have an A in prayer, an A in Bible study, and a D minus in witnessing. Oh my. And I wanted something to happen. So you were open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Definitely. Your little church appointed you to an office. What did they ask you to they do? They asked me to be the personal ministries director Now that sounds pretty. That sounds pretty innocent. Just be the personal ministries director. What did God do with that opportunity? Well, I had never been personal ministries director before. And when I took the position, I'm not the kind that wants to just stand in the podium and read the conference papers. And I wanted something to happen. So, um, 
I had read an article in the Northern Union paper about a Bible worker going to a church in Minnesota. And uh, uh, I, I thought, that's what we got to do. We, we, need a, we need a Bible worker. We need a full-time person to come and stir us and get us going in this church. I want something to happen. So you're looking for a Bible worker. Did you find one? Yes, we did, but it was a difficult uh, task. We had found that the Bible worker that went to Minnesota had come through Louis Therese School in All South right. Dakota. Yeah. And so I called him, and he said, no, Wes, he said, these people don't just come here and take training and then hope to find a place to go. They're sent by a church, and they're trained, and they go back to their church. Actually, he thought he found me someone, and then we got disappointed, and it uh, didn't happen. So who did you end up getting? Okay. I just wish. I need two hours to tell the story. <laughs> but I wish... Well, that's okay. We got four more minutes. Don't worry. <laughs> I, I, you'll have to keep track of the time. But uh, God providentially brought us, if we can put on the screen the picture of these two people, uh, Daniel and Narada McKibben. They were... Um, people that we knew nothing about. And those people came, and when I took them through the church and through the fellowship hall, I heard Narada say to Daniel, Daniel, we could do our treatments in this room. And I'm thinking, what? Bible workers don't do treatments. And I said, treatments what? And she says, well, we're medical missionaries as well. So you not only got a Bible worker, but you got a medical missionary. We got two medical missionaries and of the finest order. I said, well, what qualifies you to do medical work? <laughs> and that's when I found out that Daniel was a licensed massage therapist. He had been in charge of the Lifestyle Center at Eden Valley for seven years, and Narada was a doctor. So how did that impact what what, how you got into this thing with medical missionary work. Because I got involved with these people. I wanted to know about medical missionary work. I'd read about it, never met one in my life. And we learned a lot about medical missionary work. And while they were there, do we have it on the screen, that this couple came in who had a huge cancer. And uh, he had been to the doctors, and the doctors had told him, you got two months to live. And... Uh, I'm thinking, you know, there's no hope for this man. He was 72 years old. And believe it or not, uh, in six months' time, through her natural remedy program, he was sent back to the doctors, and he was uh, told that he was cancer-free. Amen. And he's Amen. returned to our center just recently. This We're talking about 15 years later. He is still cancer-free. So at that point, you kind of bought into this I thing. I did. I'm telling you, that said, okay, bye-bye retirement. I was <laughs> saving up for retirement. My hot tub, my motor home, we're going to travel the whole United States. And I said goodbye to that, and I want to do this work. So actually, what I hear you saying is that God impressed you to take these funds you would save for retirement, and the church is actually purchased a little piece of property. They've started a medical missionary center across the road. That's amazing what God has done. Mm. It would take me too long to tell you. I've got it on a DVD if any of you come by the booth. It's 2.45. You'd hear the whole story there. 
So, so you have the whole story there. But let me just ask you a question, Wes, as we close out here today. I want you to just share with the folks here today, how has this changed your personal life to get involved like this? I was a Laodicean Seventh-day Adventist just living life, and it has totally changed me. I understand what it means to be born again. Amen. What's inside of me is to do God's work. I have no desire for this world Amen. of any kind. So a Laodicean Seventh-day Adventist gets impressed by God to take his retirement money and invest in a wellness center. And what I hear you saying today is it has just completely altered the way you think about life in general. This is the greatest retirement that I could ever have. I am up there every day. We have worship at 945 every day. And, and then we begin our day. But it has been the most wonderful experience. God has led me there. I had never in my life prayed, Lord, what would you have me to do in my life? I directed my own life. But he took me through this means to this work. Wes, what would you say to someone sitting here today who, as you've been telling your story, they've kind of been feeling like maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to them? What would you say to them? I would just say, pray, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? God is able. He led me at the age of 55 after I had worn probably five different hats in life. And uh, he's put me into this work, and I'm not going to retire until I die. What's the greatest need of Wellness Secrets right now? The greatest need that we have. I am looking at all of you and wondering, who is there? You know, it says in Luke 10, uh, verse 2, that the harvest is great and the labors are few. We need labors. We need at least two more. One could be the director of the center. If we had more workers, what things we could do because we have a beautiful center sitting there ready to go if we had more workers. Amen. Thank you so much today, Wes, for sharing. God bless you in the work you're doing there. Thank you for the opportunity. And I want to say this, this is the first time at ASI it has been a blessing to me to hear the testimonies. It has encouraged me. God is working and is going to finish the work. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Wes. Our next story is, uh, comes to us from two young ladies who have been called by God to some very interesting work. Um, now, I understand um, that you're working in a closed country. So you won't hear us today talking about the name of the country in which you're working. We're going to avoid that if we can. And, um, but uh, we have Gina. Gina, how did God get you involved in this work? That is so good. Um, I was actually working there as, a, as an attorney. So you had gone to this country. You're working there as an attorney. Mm -hmm. And um, what... That one thing led to another? How did the Lord was impressing you? Uh, yes, just uh, seeing the local people, their local struggle, um, just not for financial needs, but um, for the lack of spiritual. Um, there was no one really to tell them about God, and they didn't have the hope or the resources that we have, the things we take for granted. Mm. Hi, G, how did you get into this? Yes, so I'm a physical therapist, and I actually took a year off to become an English teacher. 
So you're teaching English, and she's there working as a lawyer, and uh, the two of you got together? Yes. Well, I'm from California, and she's from Connecticut, Massachusetts. That sounds like a close way to get together. And God brought us together in this country. So he go takes you halfway around the world and puts you together. Yes. Yeah. Isn't God amazing? Yeah, God's amazing in the way he works. Well, so you're there, you're thinking about all these things. God is impressing you that something needs to be done. What exactly did God begin to help you do? Yes, so um, we, were, we felt impressed to do three things, to creatively share the gospel through health, a wellness center, education, and farming. You know, that sounds something like the, uh, the little book here that I read recently called Madison God's Beautiful Farm. I actually read that a year before I came. Oh, you read the book? Oh, my. And God impressed you through that. We need a health work, a agricultural work, and some education work going on. Okay, so uh, Gina, tell us, uh, this wasn't, you, you got several things going on here. How did that work itself out? Um, God is so good because when I went back to the States, said we're going to work really hard and come up with the money, and it's going to take us a while. But God knew better and said, no, 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 I'm going to provide for you because if you pay for this land, if you pay for these things, you're going to take all the credit. And this huh. is my ministry. Okay. Um, and so we got a call from uh, a person who used to live in that particular area that said, I heard you're looking for land. We should talk. And so we met with her, and she said, here. Uh, we were like, okay, so how much do you want? And she said, I want you to use it for God, and I want you to use it to plant mango trees. And we're like, we can do that. <laughs> so a donation of property. Mm -hmm. How big is that property? It's almost 20 acres. Almost 20 acres. Um, but I, what I want you to know is that we asked her, when did you buy this land? Uh -huh. And she said, in March of 2014, and that's significant for us because in March of 2014, that's when God gave us the vision, the calling to start this type of ministry. Oh, it's amazing how God is setting things up, planning things ahead of time, providing resources, inspiring people. So God's at work here. He's doing things. What other components did you add to the farm? So every Sunday, there's an English program that happens now. And the beautiful thing about it is that it's actually conducted by the local people. Um, and they're, of course, non-Adventists. But they get to share um, about God through the stories that they, that they teach in English. So about a month ago, one of the part of the curriculum was the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, and what she didn't mention is that our project manager, the one that's running this, up to um, about a couple of months ago, he was baptized. Amen. Um, and it's just so exciting because, you know, he was a young Buddhist man. He was looking for God. And by seeing the testimony, why are you doing this? Why are you giving so much to these people? Because that's what God wants us to do. Amen. Um, and it was through that that led to Bible studies. And now he's one of our Bible leaders, uh, reading, uh, leading Bible studies every Friday in our Unjai house, like we like to call it. Amen. So God is setting up things there, but he didn't stop there. He gave you some collaboration with the, actually with the government. Tell us about that. I mean, a communist government, non-Christian society, and God kind of sets something up. Uh, so this is like, like our third miracle, I guess. God is so good. We said, oh, we need information on how to collaborate with the government, um, and, but let's just go and pick up some forms. And our friends were like, you can't go like that. We were going on a mission trip, so we're not dressed appropriately to meet with government officials. So we're like, we have nothing to wear. So we had to go borrow clothes, borrow shoes. We get there, and we knock, and we're like, hi, how do we partner with the governor? Um, and then... <laughs> 
and they looked at us like, uh, you should go upstairs. And we go upstairs, and as we're going upstairs, everyone's looking at us like we're crazy. Um, And then the director the Minister of Ministry of Health of the whole country comes out and it's like, what are you girls doing? We're like, we're looking to speak to someone in charge about uh, collaborating on a health project. He's like, hmm, come to my office. So he brings uh, the Deputy Ministry of Health and they're sitting in the office and both of us are there and we just tell them how much we love the country and how much we want to help and this is our project. And the Deputy Director, with almost tears in his eyes, he said, that is my dream too. Amen. So uh, you connected with the government officials and now maybe in process of getting some amazing work started there in this country. God is going to bless that, I know. But I have a question as we close out. And I want both of you to answer this question so you just have a little time. But how has it impacted your personal life to engage in this kind of work? That is so good. I always wanted to be a missionary, but I couldn't because I wasn't a teacher or in the medical field. And God said, you don't need any of those skills. You just need to serve me and Amen. use your skills to do that. And um, I left the private sector to go on the public sector. So I would have, I still work full time. And then during my second job is this. So I work full time for this and full time for that. And God has been so good. Yes. So I grew up, I was born and raised as a Seventh-day Adventist, um, but really sometimes we go to places where things do not make sense, so God can reveal to us His love, and the love that God has revealed to me, that is really what I'm willing to share. That's why we are called Unjai. Unjai means warm heart. Do you have a booth here? Yes. Yeah, our booth is number 420. And for more information, you can go to our website. It's unjai.org. Thank you, ladies, so much for sharing with us today. God bless you and the work you're doing, and uh, we'll keep you in our prayers. Thank you. All right. I had the opportunity to go to Uganda, and I had been asked by a farmer's cooperative to go into villages and teach farmers how to process the soybeans that they were already growing in a way that would be more healthful for them and also that they could start small businesses. And what I learned when I was there is that they were growing soybeans, but they weren't giving any of them to their own children. And their children were actually dying and being malnourished because of lack of protein. And so I knew we had a simple solution right there in the community. And so we started teaching them about soaking the beans, about boiling them, making soy milk, adding the byproduct of the soy milk right back into the porridge that everyone ate for breakfast, and about what a difference that would make in their health. One of the reasons we focus on rural farm families is because that is where the hungry are. The World Food Program estimates there's 795 million hungry people in the world, and 75% of them are in these rural villages. And so with these skills, we believe that they can have an abundant life right in the rural area. One thing that I love about what our Farm Studio team is able to do, especially in the area of eastern Uganda, is to introduce the gospel to an area that is 80% Muslim. These individuals are going out and taking the message deep, deep into the villages. I mean, they are really willing to sacrifice on our behalf and on behalf of the villagers so that they can bring the message out to people who would never even get to the big city. When I was there in November, one of the places where we trained was in a hospital in a malnutrition ward. 
And the team didn't even realize it, but they planned it for Thanksgiving Day. So it was kind of surreal to be sitting there and realizing that here I was with these incredibly malnourished children and all my friends and family were back here feasting. But you know, it's too late to wait until they get to the malnutrition ward. Two of the children that I interacted with died in the next few days. And we believe that if we can make the effort and the expense to help our team members go out deep into the villages, those families won't have to come into the malnutrition ward. We can prevent that from happening. This team in Uganda has already trained 13,000 villagers. We keep really Amen. good records and we're going back now and visiting those same villages and getting to see the impact that we've had. So uh, Joy Kaufman is here with me today. She is the director of Farm Stew. But Joy, tell us, how did God prepare you I mean, I see you in Uganda, you're teaching them how to make soy uh, products. How in the world did God prepare you for that? Well, I was born in an Adventist hospital, became a vegetarian when I was nine, and just became fascinated in nutrition because everyone thought I was going to shrivel up and die <laughs> of malnutrition. They thought I would be stunted, in fact. And so I ended up studying nutrition in college and studying all about Adventists. Through the clinical research that was available in the 70s and the 80s, I was studying in the early 90s, and you were healthy, but I'd never met an Adventist until I was 35 years old. You're born in an Adventist hospital, but you'd never <laughs> met an Adventist until you were 35 years old. This is amazing. Uh, I think they were praying, though, in that hospital. <laughs> they must have been praying in that hospital yeah. and maybe even dedicated you to service or something. I hope so. <laughs> God reached out to you. What was your background before becoming an Adventist? Well, I married into a Mennonite farm family, actually. I had served overseas internationally with the Mennonite Central Committee, and that prepared me with a heart for international development, which I've had for now three decades. And I just really um, have this deep desire to have a message for our global church that has a global reach, and that's how Farm Stew was really born. How long have you been an Adventist? A little less than two years. <laughs> Now, some of us have been just a little longer. We, we, some of us here have been just a little longer, but it looks like God has just really taken you on the fast pace here. Praise God. You've joined the Adventist Church. You already have ministry going. You're in Uganda. You're working. You're training people. I heard the video, 13,000 people trained? Yeah, we're actually up to 17,000 now. I was there a few weeks ago, and it was just such a powerful thing. These, these team members, and these are church members, lay church members like all of us here at ASI, who are just thrilled to have the opportunity to be trained and equipped with simple health messages that can really help them. So we came up with this acronym, Farm Stew. And yes, these are some of the church members uh, I want to introduce you to. Fiona, especially in the front, a new Adventist like me who is now out training. And she was, she was really not having the ability to share the love of Jesus before, but now she can do that in a daily basis. Amen. So just give us the acronym quickly. What does farm stew mean anyway? I've heard of New Start, but what about this farm stew stuff? Well, Sounds like we should eat it. <laughs> Exactly, and that's what I want you to think of, something homegrown, something fresh, something local. So Farm Stew is a message, for, a recipe of abundant life. Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. But for the woman that has to go walk for half a mile to go get water, 
does she really need to be told to go get fresh air, sunshine, and exercise? <laughs> Probably I, not. I think not. So we had a few letters to play with there. So we started with farming because you have to be able to grow the food in order to eat it. In some African countries, it would cost 52% of the income just to get five a day of fruits and vegetables. Mm. So we start with farming, attitude, rest, and meals. Uh-huh. Sanitation, temperance, enterprise, and water is our acronym. That is so practical, isn't it? Hey, man, thank you. Uh, Joy, that's a blessing that you, God has impressed you to come up with this. What impact has this had in the local community? Well, we've had a very powerful impact, but I want to talk spiritually because that's one of the things that excites Amen. us most. The first Sabbath I was there five weeks ago, there was 29 baptisms. And one of the things I love is that we are able to connect our spiritual health and our physical health. For example, a seed. You all have seen seeds. Did you know that a seed is a perfect image of the Godhead? We have a picture of it here. Every seed that can bring forth life in the soil is a three-in-one picture of our one true God. And Romans 1.20 tells us that... Everything in creation, the invisible attributes of God are seen in creation. And so we talk about the health of our bodies, eating whole grains and whole seeds. And then also for the soil, we talk about improved varieties of plants and teaching vegetable gardening to women. We have people that are not having headaches now because they're Mm -hmm. drinking water all over the country. And we've had impressions from high to low. Like the the head commander of the prisons who's invited us in, he actually is contemplating becoming an Adventist because of sharing the health message with him. So, Joy, we just have a few seconds left, but tell us, how has this changed your life personally to get involved in this kind of work? Well, I'm so blessed. It's actually the Ugandan Adventists and their witness that helped me cross the line of faith to baptism. I knew I had to be part of this family. And I'm so humbled, especially by the East Central Division and what they're doing. And I just believe all of our resources should be mobilized to help equip our church members throughout the world so that they can bring this message to the world. I thank you for letting me share it today. What is your website? farmstew.org. Do you have a booth here? We don't have a booth yet, but next year, I hope. All right. Praise God. (laughs) God Thank you, Joy. God bless you and the work you're doing and multiply. Thank you. God bless you. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) It's a real blessing today, isn't it? I want to read this to you. It comes from Christ Object Lessons, page 326. It says this, not more surely is there a place prepared for us in the heavenly mansions than is the special place designated on earth where we are to be workers for God. Have you been impressed today with the stories of those that have made a sacrifice and have had a passion in their hearts for Jesus? Has that impressed your heart today? You know, I just met with the two ladies from the unentered country that gave their testimony. And as we prayed together, tears flowed down their face. And I interpreted those tears this way. They have a passion for that country. They have a great desire to see men and women in that country come to Christ and be changed by His grace. You know, I'm always impressed with Jesus' statement in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9 when the scripture says in Matthew 9 and verse 35 and 36 
And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease. Jesus' ministry was a comprehensive ministry. He cared for people physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Then Jesus makes this amazing statement, but he saw the multitudes and he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. How many of you believe the words of Jesus? Do you believe the words of Jesus? The harvest is what, everybody? The harvest is what? Plentiful, but the laborers are what? Few. Is God speaking to your heart today to raise up a new generation of laborers for him? You know, not long ago, 2015, San Antonio, Texas, there was something going on at the general conference session that you may not have been aware of. ASI sponsored 65 pastors from China, from mainland China, to come to the general conference session. ASI raised that money. Every afternoon we met with them and we studied the Bible, the great prophetic truths of the Adventist church. Many of them had never had the opportunity to have advanced education before. After that time at the general conference session, we invited them to come on an Adventist history tour with us. We traveled to Washington, New Hampshire and studied the Bible Sabbath at the first Adventist Sabbath keeping church. We traveled to William Miller's farm and studied the second coming of Christ. We traveled to Hiram Edson's farm and studied the sanctuary message. We traveled to Battle Creek and studied the origin of our health message. As we were traveling, I had an opportunity to interface with many of these Chinese brothers and sisters. And one young lady impressed me greatly. She was about five foot two, and I had to look down quite a bit, and she looked up as we talked. And through the Chinese translator, I asked her, what do you do? She said, I'm a layperson, but I'm a church planter. She said, I've been in a city in China that will remain unnamed, that has over a million people, no Seventh-day Adventist when I went there, and uh, I've been there now four years working by myself, and I've raised up an Adventist church. I said to her, what's the most difficult experience you had? What was the hardest? She said, Pastor Mark, I went there alone. I didn't know one person in that city. The nights were horrible. I had little money of self-support. And I was staying in a one-room apartment. And she said, the most horrible thing is when I would go to bed at night and the rats would climb up on my bed and bite my feet. She said, Pastor, it was horrible. I'd get up at the night and the rats would scatter. I said, why did you stay? Why did you stay? Because there were people that needed to know Jesus. That is the spirit of early Adventism. That is the spirit of ASI. The spirit of commitment commitment to a prophetic message that goes to the ends of the earth. That is the spirit of sacrifice, 
That is the spirit of a new generation that God is raising up. I love the song, Heirs of the Kingdom. Oh, why do you slumber? Why are you sleeping so near your blessed home? Work thee, arouse thee, and gird on thine armor. Speed, for the moments are hastening on. I want to be part of that grand and glorious group that proclaims God's last day message in His grace. Don't you? Let's stand and sing the song together, Heirs of the Kingdom. Oh, why dost thou slumber? We are going to pray just now. And as we pray, as Nancy leads us in prayer, would you like to bow your head and in the quietness of this auditorium say, Jesus, I want to make a deeper commitment to you and to sacrifice and to mission. Let's pray. Shall we bow our heads? Our most precious Heavenly Father, we have been humbled this evening as we have listened to these inspiring stories of our pioneers and how they sacrificed everything to follow your call to serve. As we look around and we see the ripple effect of their efforts combined with your blessing, we are thrilled. And Lord, I pray that daily you will give us a deeper sense of your unconditional and transformational love so that in response to that love, we will have the heart and mind, the hands and feet of Jesus and be compelled by his love to do his works. May each of us be so in tune with you, Lord, that we will respond positively to your still small voice. And may we always, Lord, realize that it is your power alone that makes our willingness to serve successful. So, Lord, we long to go home. May each one of us in this room do all that we can to hasten that day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.